I gotta tell you a, a joke. Um, so we're all still here after yesterday, and uh, Jesus did not return. Um, you know, Matthew and Mark. I mean, just we don't know the day or the hour. Jesus Himself says, "I don't know the day or the hour." And um, but it was really funny. Someone texted me yesterday and said, I "said Are you still here?" And uh, and I'm like, and I just respond, I'm like, huh? What do you mean am I still here? And, he, and his response back was, oh, good, we're safe then. And I'm like, of course, I'm thinking like, wait, uh, dude, I could be just, you know, yeah, whatever. And uh, I respond, he goes, uh, he goes, good, we're safe then. And, and I respond, I said, but I can't find Sarah. Uh, so we might be in trouble. Um, anyways, uh, we're still here um, there's some billboards that are going to go up, not around this area, I think around Nashville, that says, uh, has the verse Matthew, not the day or the hour is known, um, and then it's going to, it says it right above it, that was awkward. Um, so, it'd be a real good, uh, you know, supposedly, I guess the guy said now he was 100 years off, so we're going to wait another 100 years to, uh, to get to Jesus' return. I'm sorry, I'm poking fun, and, uh, and that's okay, because I think he deserves it. So um, we're in the series called The Gospel. If you have your Bibles, um, and like I've kind of pounded the past couple weeks, man, make sure you bring your Bibles. Um, take notes. Uh, you know, I was talking to, um, I don't want to put a guilt trip on you if you don't have your Bible today, but I was talking to, and this is kind of a slam on electronic Bibles too, um, but I was talking to a church planter friend of mine, okay? And uh, he said, you know, if you're not taking notes and writing in your Bible, what are you going to have for your grandchildren to look at in 50 years, in 40 years? And of course, we kind of joked. I said, you know, if you got a, I said, one guy in our church has a Kindle, and you can take notes on that. And I said, another guy has an iPad. And I said, you can take notes on that. I said, so maybe for our grandkids, the Kindle might be, oh, let's go look at Grandpa's Kindle and see what he wrote and read, you know? Uh, so, uh, but I, I will say, so my, my comment on this on electronic device, I mean, I'm obviously I'm holding one. Uh, I have lots of notes in mine, though. Uh, 16 pages that we got to get through today. So um, if, yeah, 16 or 17. But here's the deal. This is the thing. I, I want you guys to be able to take notes, highlight, circle things. That's, that's the important thing because that is the Word of God and it is everything we need for a life abundant obedience to Christ. It's, found, it's the sufficiency of Scripture. It's all within that book. And so we need to live, eat, and breathe that book as we live, eat, and breathe the gospel. And the book is what explains the gospel to us, okay? Um, if you don't have your Bibles, the verses will be up there. And as we crank through these, um, we're going to be in John chapter 3. And there's a verse in this also, yeah, also, yeah, my wife just reminded me. Uh, the notes, man, there's a second page that you should have that's got lots of, uh, except for the front row, I don't think it has them. Um, so there's, it's got fronts and backs, so there's lots of room for you to take lots of good notes. Make sure you all have those. Um, there we go. All right, that's gorgeous, 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 gorgeous. Um, this will be good, guys. I, I really, um, I, I'm super pumped. You should have heard. I was at a church planters thing the past couple days uh, in Columbus, and just got to meet with other church planters and hear what's going on in their lives and their churches. And, and like, I mean, we don't compare our success to each other. You know, our success is, is totally in God's hands. 
Uh, but man, like, we're just right in there, just cranking away. I mean, God is doing good things here. And, and, uh, but where I was kind of going with that is that it was fun. Rusty says, dude, your sermon just comes out in all your answers. And I'm like, and I told him later, because what happened was like, we were in our church planting classes and stuff we were in was more like a forum where we and other church planters sat around the room with a facilitator, and we discussed these four different hot topics, uh, not the store, uh, these four different topics about what was going on in church planting. And, and like a lot of the answers was a lot of the, that, or a lot of the things that I had to add, if I had anything to add to the discussion, was like stuff that we were talking about. And, and later on, Rusty's like, dude, your, your sermon just kept coming up, you know, in, in what you were saying. And, and I said, you know, man, I hope and pray. I said this at the gas station as we were leaving. I said, I hope and pray that the sermons that I teach and the lessons that you guys learn become so much a part of your lives that they just come out. Like, it just, it just comes out. Like, there, you have nothing of yourself inside here. The only thing you have to come out is God's Word and the Gospel in Him. That's the only thing that can come out. And um, so, that's my admonition and, uh, uh, to you guys. So, we're going to be in John chapter 3. There's a verse in here that everybody knows, but nobody knows any of the verses around the verse. And that is, for God so loved the world that he gives the only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Everybody knows that verse. You know, everybody holds that verse up at the football games. You know, but they have no clue what John 1 through 15 says. And then the John 17 through 21, of course, and obviously the rest of that book. So that verse is super important, but man, the verses around it are so crucial to us in understanding the gospel. So let me recap real quick. We've basically, some of the major themes that we've talked about in this series called the gospel is, first of all, that it's about a person. It's not about a program. It's not about a process. It's not even about a prayer. It's not about an invitation. It's not about baptism. It's about a person. It's about Jesus Christ. It's about our relationship with Jesus Christ. The second thing we talked about was that our relationship with Jesus, in order to be a disciple of Christ, Jesus says in that passage that we, that we looked at in Luke that we have, to be, we have to hate our mother, father, brother, sister, even ourselves. We have to carry our cross, and we have to be willing to, have to lose everything in order to even be a disciple. So, I mean, that's the standard that Jesus says. It's not this, well, you need to walk an aisle to be my disciple, or you need to pray a prayer to be my disciple, or you need to go to church to be my disciple. No, he says that we have to have a superior love for him, a love that is beyond everything else, everybody else. And, and we talked about in that sermon that all of our affections, if you've heard it come out, with, even when I was leading worship today, all of our affections belong to God, 100%. All 100% of your love belongs to God. Not 90% to God, then 5% to your spouse, and then 5%. No. 100% of our affection. The only person worthy of all of our love is God. Now, of course, just so that I don't confuse some of you guys, this, then our love for our spouse and our love for our families and everyone else comes out of our love for Christ. It, it's actually Christ's love then that we use to love other people. That's the only way we can feel can fulfill Ephesians 5 men where it says to love your wife as Christ loved the church. It's the only way, because we can't love, Christ, can't love our wife as Christ loved the church with our love because it just fails miserably compared to Christ's love. 
So we'd have this superior love. And we talk about what it means to carry a cross. Jesus didn't mean, well, you've got to be willing to take some suffering. That's not what Jesus meant when he said carry the cross. Yet there would be suffering involved. But what he meant was that carrying a cross, someone carrying a cross was dead to their dreams, dead to their desires. They were a dead man walking on the way to be crucified. That person had no more plans. He wasn't worried about what he was going to eat tomorrow or what was going on or the plans he had for his family. He was going to be dead. And Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you're dead to your dreams, dead to your plans, and you are alive to my dreams, my plans, my desires. That's why Paul says in Galatians 2.20, for I am crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. So that's what it means to carry your cross. And then he says in that passage also in Luke that uh, we we're to have total loss. And guys, these are not Jesus' suggestions on how to be a good disciple. He, he says these in such a way, it's very emph- emphatic that we cannot even be a disciple of his unless those are true of us. Now, obviously, we're not going to get all those perfect But going down that road of having those things perfect, that's where we're supposed to be at. So, total loss, losing everything for him. So that was the next one. Then, last week, we talked about what it is in the crucifixion that actually saves us. What it is that the gospel, like if we could sum it up in a sentence... What the gospel is, and I asked you guys to write down on your paper, what is the gospel? And I tell you what, I was really thrilled that, like, I asked you guys in Bible study to read off some of those answers. And, like, I'm like, man, that's awesome. A good amount of our people have a good understanding of what the gospel is. Guys, that is not true across the board. It's not true. Because I think if people understood what the gospel is, they would be living by the gospel and eating and breathing the gospel. And the more we understand it, the more we will do as well. And so it was just encouraging. But we read this one sentence, and I'm going to repeat it to you. Uh, it says this, the, the, if we can summarize the gospel in one sentence, uh, it would be this. The just and gracious God of the universe looked hopelessly upon sinful people and sent his son Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to bear his wrath against sin on the cross and to show his power over sin in the resurrection so that all who have faith in him will be reconciled to God forever. Now, just super quick. Listen so quickly with me because I've got to get moving. But we've got just God and gracious God, and he acts in graciousness towards us, and that is a threat to his character. Okay, so God is just. And when he acts in anything less than sending us to hell, he is acting in grace and mercy. When you don't give someone something that they deserve, you, we would not consider that person doing justice. So it's a threat to God's justice. It's a threat to God's justice. So what happens, that's the tension of the gospel. The question is not... Why would God send sinners to hell? The question is, why would God choose to save any of them? That's the question. So what happens is that that tension is what's solved in Christ and the gospel. Because the justice that's due for you and I is served, but it's served to someone who substitutes in our place. And that is Christ. 
And we looked at that passage in Romans 3, and what it says is that God offered up Jesus as the propitiation for our sin. And what that means, to absorb the wrath or the punishment or the justice due. That's kind of the same thing. The, the, wrath, the wrath is the punishment or the justice that's due to you and I. And Jesus absorbs that wrath. That's what a propitiation means, to absorb that wrath. And that by faith, Jesus' righteousness and the benefits of him absorbing the wrath then are applied or appropriated or given to us by faith. So that's where we're at now in this process of understanding what is the gospel. And the question now is... So that's really cool what Jesus did on the cross. That's, that's matter of, I mean, really cool. That just fails to express what happened and, and, and even my feelings and emotions towards it. The question is, so what happens in the cross is, is that Jesus lived a perfect life in order to earn the righteousness and live by the law and earn the righteousness that you and I Need in order to have a right relationship with God, in order to be reconciled with Him, we need that righteousness. And then we also need the punishment for our sins we have committed and will commit. We need to have those paid for. And that's what happened when Jesus absorbed the wrath of God. All of our sins, past, present, future, of all believers, will, it was thrust onto Jesus Christ, and then God's wrath was poured out onto those sins. So, two things, his righteousness and the effects of the propitiation or the wrath, the punishment that he absorbed, how do those become appropriated or how are they appropriated in our lives? How do, they, how do we get those? How do those become ours? And that's what we're going to look at today in John chapter 3. Uh, you know, when we look at John three sixteen, we think of God's love of the world. That's great. So you just believe in him, you know, and, and, and everything's good to go. Man, there's so much more just even in the verses that are around that passage, around that verse that everybody knows. So um, the gospel that many of us know is just simply, and, and, and I, I want to attack this, because I want to make sure, number one, that none of us are down this road, and that none of us go down this road. But we have equivalent, or, or basically made the gospel simply an intellectual acknowledgement of facts. So because I believe Jesus died on the cross, and I believe he saved me, now I'm good to go. And the gospel and salvation is much more than just simply an intellectual acknowledgement of facts. Jesus, or Satan himself, believes that Jesus died on the cross to pay for people's sins, okay? And he's not going to be in heaven, at least last time I read the book, okay? So, the gospel, that, that thing is not in and of itself what saves us. There's more to it. Um, and you know, you guys have read the passage. Jesus says, you know, depart, me, depart from me, for I never knew you. Um, and there's a lot of people that have an intellectual acknowledgement of facts that Jesus will someday say to you, depart from me, for I never knew you. And that's not going to be a good day. So the question then again is, how does the gospel become appropriate? How does it become ours? How does it become a reality in our lives? And 
Let's listen to Jesus in John chapter 3, and then we're going to decipher this down and take a look at how that that becomes appropriated in our life. John chapter 3, we're going to read 21 verses here. So uh, try to stay with me. I know when someone reads something uh, and I'm listening, I tend to not listen. Uh, So that's why it's good. Follow along. And uh, so this is a story of Nicodemus. It says in verse 1, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This is important, a ruler of the Jews. Verse 2, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Nicodemus was a religious ruler. He, he knew God's word. He knew the Old Testament. He, he, he believed that Jesus was who he said he was. Okay? Verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said, the spirit, I'm sorry, the spirit, or, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into mummy's womb uh, and be born? Verse 5, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sounds, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? So he, it's just pause right there. He had had an intellectual acknowledgement of facts. But we're getting ready to find out that he was not on his way to heaven. He did not have a relationship with God, a saving relationship. The the effects of what the cross at least will be having would would not have been appropriated in his life. Of course, at this point, the cross had not happened yet. But Jesus basically undercuts the salvation or the way of salvation that Nicodemus was seeking at this point in his life. And so Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Verse 10, Jesus answered him, are you a teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. So guys, Jesus just got done saying that you cannot see the kingdom of God. You will not go to heaven. You cannot be saved unless you are born again. And then right in here, he says, are you a teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? They just said, look, you have an intellectual acknowledgement of facts, but you do not understand these things. So verse 11, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of things. And verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up a serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of God be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And then the verse that we all know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17, back to unfamiliar territory. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned all 
ready. That's, that's pretty important. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment the light has come. This, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light. Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. And does not come to the light. Lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light. So that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. I'm guilty of this myself. I've presented the gospel using John 3.16, and I think that the verses following John 3.16 are just as crucial in understanding the gospel. Because he talks about our sinfulness, the reason why we need the gospel, is we live in darkness and we seek nothing but darkness. So, back to John 3.3. 3. It says, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Being born again is you know, kind of an archaic, uh, antiquated phrase that, that we don't, um, you know, don't hear that a lot. We definitely don't hear it in the secular world, and we don't even hear it in the church world a whole, whole lot. But Jesus says, guys, listen, Jesus says that if you're not born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. So it is an eternally important question that we answer and understand what it means to be born again. And so this begs the question, have you been born again? Have you been born again? Now, I know, like, a lot of us, you're going to go, well, I'm saved already. Like, I really want you to look at this passage in a fresh way. You know, it's good for us to re-examine our salvation, maybe even re-examine it very often. It's good for us to do that. And, you know, if you walk away today going, man, I, I don't know, like, that's okay. Like, I mean, it's, it's okay that you're trying to figure out, am I truly saved? You need to wrestle with that. But to leave in falseness, thinking that I am saved and I'm not, I've never been born again, would mean to go to hell. And so it's okay for us to re-examine and make sure our understanding is correct. And, and I mean, same thing goes for me as a pastor. Okay. So have you been born again? You know, have, has anybody heard of the Barna Research Group? Barna Research Group. Nobody? A couple people. Okay. All right, so Barna basically, basically does Christian research projects, and, and they, they do lots of things to tell us, lots of things they want to communicate to pastors and stuff about Christianity, about believers, about their lives, about what they believe, and so on and so forth. Well, they did a research um, thing to determine basically how many people were born again. How many people were born again? So they asked Two questions. If you answered yes to the one question, then you proceeded to question number two. And if you answered yes to that, then they marked you down. You are indeed a born-again believer. Question number one was this. Have you ever made a personal commitment to Jesus that is still important in your life today? You answer yes. Second question then. Do you know that you are going to heaven because you accepted Jesus? You answer yes. Mark down. You are a born-again Christian. And according to their research, 50% of Americans are born-again believers. 
50% of people are dedicated, sold out. When Jesus says to carry your cross, to hate your mother and father, to have superior love for him, to carry this cross dead to your dreams, that 50% of America is born-again believers. Now, obviously, um, obviously that's not right. Um, I mean, you know, when we look at the beliefs of these born-again believers, like you begin to dig more into their study... And the beliefs of these born again, there's a number of them who believe that works can get you to heaven, that you can do enough good to get yourself to heaven, or that these lifestyles, that in this study, these lifestyles, that something that they found of born again believers versus non-Christians, their lifestyles are virtually indistinguishable from non-Christians. One headline said that the born-again Christians are just as likely to divorce to divorce as non-born-again Christians. Our Christians love material possessions just as much as non-Christians. We listen and watch all the same as non-Christians. We respond to injustice in the world the same as non-Christians. I mean, so we have to come to this conclusion that born-again Christians really don't look and in some ways believe differently or any differently than non-Christians. And the reality is, I mean, the reality is is that, that that conclusion is completely invalid. That conclusion is completely invalid. I'm sure that Barna's research that that they were thorough, that they asked these questions and, and they recorded them all correctly, and that 50%, I'm sure, answered yes to both of those questions. But the fact is, from that reason, they are not indistinguishable, but the problem is that there are a lot of people in that survey who believe they're going to heaven and will one day find themselves being said to, depart from me for I never knew you. And, um, and if we're not careful... It can be us. Just because you prayed a prayer at Renovation Church or you prayed a prayer at another church or that you were baptized or that you walked an aisle or that you talked to a pastor does not guarantee and secure your salvation. Jesus says we have to be born again. It's through that born again that the benefits of the cross are appropriated to our lives. Um, you know, again, you say, I, I made a personal commitment to Jesus and I believe I'm going to heaven and you believe in Jesus and you believe you're going to heaven. And neither of these things in and of themselves constitute what it means to be born again. I mean, think about it. who doesn't believe in Jesus. I mean, just look, you know, the unmarried couple sleeping together believes in Jesus. The men and women who haven't been to worship or to church in 10 years believe in Jesus. Multitudes of world-loving, lukewarm church attenders believe in Jesus. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to think about today what it means to be born again, the process by which salvation is appropriated in our lives. But here's what's cool. If you go back in John, and you jump back just to the, the this is not, uh, this will actually will be up on the screen, and you go back in chapter 2, and we go to verse 23, this will give you an example of someone who had this intellectual acknowledgement of these facts, but the benefits of the cross was not appropriated in their lives. And we go to verse 23, it says, Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus 
on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all the people and needed no one to bear witness about him. For he himself knew what was in man or what was in their hearts. So they believed, but Jesus was not entrusted to them. It's an example. And Nicodemus knew what it meant to believe in Jesus, but not what it meant to be born again. I mean, obviously, he says, what do you mean? I mean, I have to go back into my mom's belly? You know, gross. Um, and so, the, again, and I know I'm belaboring this, and, and I, I want to on purpose, is that no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. So it is important for us to understand or ask the question, have you been born again? Um, again, it's beyond intellectual. And so the question, what God does in our hearts when we are born again? Um, and we talked a little bit about this a little bit earlier, but God is the supreme actor in salvation, meaning he is the one that is primarily doing everything in salvation. And we got to also understand that God's grace permeates the whole picture of what it means to be born again. Guys, because even our faith, by which salvation, and this is appropriate in our lives, even that faith is a gift that's of God's grace. Okay? So this is really important. Um, again, your faith is not based on a prayer or walking an aisle. And uh, I'm going to confuse a few of you here. Um, but just hang with me, okay? It's not even really based upon a decision. Okay? So hang with me. So the question then happens, what happens when you are born again? Based on John 3, four different things we're going to look at. And these are not necessarily in a sequential order. So don't get this, okay, that happened to me, that happened, okay, I'm on step three. Like, don't, that's not what we're doing. Some of these happen, for some people, they happen maybe out of order. Some people, they ha one happens, and then a couple things, this, maybe a few days go by, and another thing happens. And some, for some people, these things are very, like, happen almost instantaneous. So the first thing is this. This is what happens when you are born again. Okay? Number one, God reveals our need. God reveals our need. When was the last time you went to the doctor and said, could you give me a prescription for something that I don't really need? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, I've got this sickness that I don't have, but would you go ahead and give me medication for it? Just for the heck? Like, we're not, we're not going to, in order to, to faith in Jesus Christ, to be born again, we have to understand our need for it first. Otherwise, there's no need for a cure if you don't think you need fixed. And that's why we, we find a lot of problem. And I hear frustrations talking about, well, how do I present the gospel to my coworker because they think their whole life is fine. And, you know, I, 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 every situation is different. But number one, we have to pray that God reveals their need to them and and if God can use us to help them understand that. Like, like don't, you don't need to go to them and say, dude, well, you, it's because you're a sinner going to hell. Like, like yeah, that's true. But there's probably a more careful way that, that we could probably and should uh, say that uh, to them. Um, but God reveals our need. If we go back to the story of Nicodemus here, back to John chapter 3. Nicodemus was part of the ruling council. He was very well respected. I mean, this guy was a devout man. 
He spent an entire life learning how to enter the kingdom of God and teaching others likewise. Um, I mean, studying what, uh, what commands to obey. And, you know, it's important. This is important because it brings gravity to the fact that basically Jesus then says, you have no spiritual life in you whatsoever. If we go to verse 11 and 12, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So this is a man who's devoted his entire life. Like you guys look at a pastor and you go, you, you kind of elevate them a little bit, whether good or bad, that's not my point. But you kind of, well, he's devoted to God and studying God's work and preparing a sermon. So, like Nicodemus would have been three miles ahead of our idea of what a pastor is. Like these guys, whole lives, everything devoted, committed to the study of God. Like they weren't worried about, like they were focused on that. And so when Jesus says that, did you have no stinking clue? Like that's a big deal. That's a big deal. It's like Jesus going to a conference full of pastors and saying, you guys have no clue what it means to be saved. In verse 3, basically, Jesus undercuts the entire foundation of who Nicodemus is. He says, basically, all of your religion in, in the end is really meaningless. And it's just a cover-up for your isolation from God. Let me ask you guys a question. Do you think our religion today could be a cover-up for our isolation from God? Do you think we could be lost and on our way to hell, but be entrenched and deeply involved and even committed to religion that it serves as a cover-up for our isolation and lostness and separation from God? It could be. Religion can be the means by which we have our ears tickled week by week, but mask the fact that we are separated from God. Jesus is revealing Nicodemus' Nicodemus's needs, and he does this in a few different ways. That's what I want to look at. Next on your outline there. So the new birth. So Jesus reveals to Nicodemus his needs, and the three things that he says is this. The new birth is necessary to know God. So he tells Nicodemus that the new birth is necessary to know God. You cannot know God apart from being born again. Now guys, this is super important because we need to look through what we're talking about today. Number one, we need to examine our lives. That we need to examine the lives of the people around us. Not to say you're lost or you're, because we're not the ultimate judge. But we need to present the gospel to them and make sure that they understand it and the people around us and, 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 and set it up against what we are talking about today. John 3, 3, Jesus answered him saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John 3, 7 says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And again, guys, this is not just for Nicodemus. This is for all of us. And in order for any one of us to spend eternity with God, we must be born again. The second thing, so number one, the new birth is necessary to know God. Number two, the new birth is impossible without God. The new birth is impossible without God. Nicodemus is dumbfounded, and he says in verse 4, 
of chapter 3 says, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, obviously, that's not what Jesus meant, right? I mean, which one of you went back into your mommy's womb, you know? Like, that's not what Jesus meant. But what Jesus was getting at here, guys, this is important to understand in the text. What Jesus was getting here is that what I'm telling you, you have to do, you can't do. Jesus tells him that this thing that you have to have, this being born again, is nothing that you can do. It is impossible without God. And that's crucial Guys, there's churches all around us that it, well, it's all about having enough faith and it's all about saying the right prayer. And, and look, Jesus is saying here, it's not even possible for you to do without God. You know, uh, I like Dr. Platt when he's talking about this in Secret Church. He says, who, who, who have you decided to be born? Like you're floating around in mommy's tummy and you go, ah, I think today I will be born. Like, None of us. It was biological, but none of us mentally go, huh, I think I'll be born today. Like, no, it's impossible for us. The same thing is true when it comes to being born again as a believer in Christ, is that it is impossible without God. And this is crucial because, well, I'll just leave it at that. This is very crucial. You know what, in the Greek, what he literally means in this being born again is to be born from above. To be born from above. And uh, you and I who seek darkness and nothing but darkness, it is impossible for us to be born again or be born from above apart from God. It is impossible without God. You can't manufacture this. It is, um, it is impossible without God from above through His Spirit giving you life. So, I mean, this is a picture that we see throughout all the New Testament. In Matthew 19, 25 through 26, let's look at this. It says, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Now, we use this verse to say, well, you know, through God, all things are possible. This is in the context of salvation, He just said, you know what? You can't save yourself. You can't be born again. It has to be done from above. It is God. He he just says right here, Jesus looked at them and said, with with man, this is impossible. They just ask, how can you be saved? He says, with man, this is impossible. So it's impossible without God. Let me, we're going to fly through this. I want you guys to write down a bunch of these verses. Uh, But I want to give us just a quick portrait of us before we were born again. For some of you, this is the portrait of you right now because you've not been born again. For others of us, this is the portrait of us before we were born again. First thing is this, we, were, we are morally evil. Morally evil. I purposefully did not say that you do bad things. Because like all of us would be willing to say, I do bad things. But to say that, well, I am morally evil. Well, that's just too far. That's what the Bible says. We're morally evil. Genesis 8.21 says, For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. 
Luke 11, 11 through 13 says, if, then, or if you then, who are evil? I mean, it's Jesus talking. You, who are evil? He just, it's, just, it's just assumed that they're evil. And he's speaking to the disciples at this point. And John 3, 19, in the verse that we're looking at, says, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. We're morally evil. This is a portrait, again, of you before you were born again. And the second one is you, we are spiritually sick. Spiritually sick. You just write down Matthew 9, verse 12. Take a look at that later. We have a terminally malignant disease far more weightier than any physical disease. Spiritually sick. We are slaves to sin. Again, this is before you were born again. You were slaves to sin. John 8, 34. You can write that down. Look at it later. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Romans 6, 16 through 20. We are slaves to the sinful nature. You can write that down. Look at it later. 2 Timothy 2, 26. 2 Timothy 2, 26. We are captive to the devil himself. The next thing, we are blinded to truth. This is super crucial for understanding that it is impossible without God. We are blinded to truth. Again, we're not going to look at these verses, but just write them down. 2 Corinthians 2.14. We cannot understand the things of God. They are foolishness to us. 2 Corinthians 4.4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers from seeing the light of the gospel. This is talking about Satan. He has blinded the minds of the unbelievers from seeing the light of the gospel. We are blinded to truth. Ephesians 4.18, write that down. Our understanding is darkened and we have hearts of stone. Matthew 5.8 says that we cannot see God. The next one, we're blinded to truth. We are lovers of darkness. Ephesians 5.8, you were once darkness. John 3.20, in the same passage that we're in today, is everyone who does evil hates the light for fear of his deeds being exposed. The lover of darkness. Next, we are children of wrath. We are children of wrath. James 4.4, Romans 5.10. Put those those down. James 4.4, Romans 5.10. Both tell us we are enemies of God. You say, well, I loved God, I've loved God all of my life. And no, you've loved the God that you made up, but not the God of the Bible. Guys, even, even when we are saved, there are moments when we show hatred towards God. But before we were saved, you hated God. Um, we're enemies of God. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says we are objects of the wrath of God. Almost done. Last one is this. We are spiritually dead. We are spiritually dead. Again, this is before we were born again. You can write down Romans 5, 12. We are under the sentence of physical death. Ephesians 5, 14. We were spiritually dead. Or we are spiritually dead. Sorry, Romans, Ephesians 5, 14. Romans 6.23, there is eternal death for those who have not been born again. And then last one you write down there, Ephesians 2.1. 
you were dead in your transgressions. This is a portrait of us before we are born again, before we come to faith in Christ. See, this is important, guys. This is important. And I went through all of that because it sets the stage for this next question. How is it possible for you who are morally evil, every inclination towards evil, how is it possible for you to choose that which is good? How is that possible? How is it possible for you to choose that which is good? How is it possible for you who are spiritually sick to make yourself well? How is it possible for you who are slaves to sin to set yourself free from sin? How is it possible to be blinded from truth and to cause yourself to see? How is it possible for you to run to the light when you hate it? And the Bible says we don't just can't see the light, but if we could see that, we would hate it. We hate the light. So how is it that we could even begin to run to the light when we can't see it in the first place, and we would hate it, and we do hate it? How is it possible for a dead person to cause themselves to come to life? And this is the whole point. This is not something that we can do. God has to do this in our lives. And I know, guys, listen, I know this is really hard for us to stomach. Even those of us who are saved, to really understand this truth, this is hard because we are good, moral American people. Listen to this. Who take our general understanding of American morality, given a dose of church attendance and obedience to parts of the Bible, being sure to avoid some of the things of the world, We put all that together and we think we are certainly not as bad as this sounds. And I think the Bible knows us a lot better than we know ourselves. And you put on top of that, we're like a do-it-yourself kind of people. Surely I can make my way to God. Surely I can have enough faith or say the right words. Jesus is saying you can't. And here's the deal, guys. I know that this frustrates some of you guys because you're like, well, you, you keep telling us we can't do this, we can't do this. And you know what? I, I get it. There is nothing I can do. And so now what happens in your frustration, you just say, you just throw your hands up and go, well, I just don't know what to do. Now you're getting to the heart of what it means to be born again because there is nothing you can do. So now you're getting to the heart of what it means to be born again. If it frustrates you and brings you to a point of hopelessness and desperation, then that is the point. It's revealing our need. It reveals our need, but God has to reveal our need. Guys, if you don't feel the weight of that desperation, then you should be worried. Hear me very clearly. If you don't feel the weight of that desperation, even if you are saved, but you don't feel, or if you think you're saved, but you don't feel the weight of the desperate need for God to have worked in your life, then I think there's room to be scared. Am I trying to scare you? If it causes you to examine your salvation, then yes, I'm trying to scare you. Okay? Because you've bought into, if you, if, if you don't see the desperation of your need for God, then you've bought into this self-sufficient path to God. Which then puts us right in the same category of every other world religion. This path to God. 
So, back to these three things. Number one was new birth is necessary to know God. New birth is impossible without God. And the third thing is new birth is dependent on God. New birth is dependent on God. You cannot be born again apart from your desperation for God and your sin. A realization of your need. You know, Nicodemus asked in this verse, in verse 9, he says, How, how can this be? And guys, the whole verse, if you, if you kind of break up this passage we're in, John chapter 3, verse 1 through 21, the first 10 verses is basically focusing on what is done to you, what is done to us, what happens from above, and it's really this part of that good news that verses 1 through 10 is about. The reality is this, the gospel is a picture of God coming to you right where you're at. Guys, that's the part of the beauty of the gospel. There's so many things that are beautiful about it, but it's not God. There is none of this, well, just you got to meet God halfway. There is none of that. There is none of that, well, I just got to lift my hands up in faith. There is none of that. Our salvation is dependent upon God, is necessary, and is, is impossible without God. And see, this goes against, again, I know so many churches that, well, I, you know, I, I just, you just got to take that first step. Because that first step isn't possible without God. It's not possible without God. We who are morally evil, blinded to the truth, who hate the light, you're not going to take that first step without God. God reveals our need. Number two, the big, big number two is that God changes our heart. God changes our heart. Nicodemus is confused and and Jesus clarifying in verses 5 through 7, back to chapter 3, 5 through 7. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. So Jesus begins to picture, paint this picture of water and spirit. And Jesus then says to Nicodemus, he says, you should be familiar with this. Now, this is key. Guys, remember we were talking about understanding the context of the verse and, and how to interpret Scripture? This is key because some, some denominations take this passage to support water baptism as a part of their salvation. And it is nowhere in the context. I mean, Church of Christ does this. I don't, I don't want to call out other denominations, so I'll stop right there. But baptismal regeneration or the fact that we can be saved through us is not supported in this verse. It's nowhere in the context. And so when Jesus says, these things you should have been familiar with, the idea of being water baptism that John the Baptist was doing and that Jesus instituted and told us to go do would have not have been familiar to Nicodemus. But the idea of being cleansed by the Spirit and this idea of water being a cleansing part is what Nicodemus would have been familiar with. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, you've spent your entire life trying to change who you are from the outside in, trying to get all the right, and, and the reality is, is that you need something to happen to you from the inside out. 
This whole thing of water and spirit is an action that comes from the inside out. Being dipped in water or sprinkled with water, that's an action from the outside in. And that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about a change from the inside out. That is only done by God. Guys, we can baptize. I can, we do baptize. And that, but what we're talking about here, what Jesus is talking about, is something that only can happen from above. Um. So what happens in the new birth is that God changes our hearts. God changes our hearts. You see, it's, it's amazing because in our modern Christianity, here's what happens. In modern Christianity, here's what happens. You come to this point where you do this religious ritual like praying a prayer or walking an aisle or signing a card at a church. And basically what happens is you somehow think like this. Basically, You let go of this world and the things you love, and you reach to the things of God, which, if you're honest, seem laborious and not that exciting. Certainly not as exciting as the things of this world. But you know you've got to reach for these things in order to save your skin. Now you're in a dilemma. Because as a Christian... You're supposed to want the things of God, but you really want the things of the world. And you start this process of trying to like the things of God, but you find yourself not finding any joy. And you find yourself running back to the things of the world, and you end up thinking and living a defeated Christian life. But you think, but at least I'm saving my skin because I'm trying to reach for these things. And guys, that is not the life of a Christian. Because as... What happens initially is God changes our hearts. We are given a new heart that begins, that's that's key, begins to love the things of God. So you're still going to have this struggle, but these things of God become increasingly more beautiful and desirable to you. Does that make sense? But for those of you or those of people around us that, that... said a prayer, but their, their desires never began to change. That's a problem. That's a problem. Because what happens is, guys, we're not, God changes our heart. We're not trying to change or fix our old nature. That's not salvation. We are given a new heart. He puts a new heart in us so that we begin to love the things of God, new longings, new affections, new loves, this is, and again, guys, I don't want to confuse anybody. This is a process. But there is a beginning point. And our affections and our new love, that begins. And they grow as we live this life with Christ. Let's talk about this, this water and spirit baptism that he is talking about. And we need to realize that water in the Old Testament was a symbol of purification. Water in the Old Testament was a symbol of purification. So when Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, a teacher of the law, a, a guy who would have known the Old Testament frontward and backward, he says, you would be familiar with this. So the Old Testament, water was a symbolism of purification. is a symbol of being purified of all that defiles you. And again, John 3 is not talking about water baptism as in salvation for, through baptism. There's nowhere in the context. Um, Titus 3, 5, you write that down, talks about how we are saved by the mercy of God and the washing of the Spirit. The washing of the Spirit. So Ezekiel 36 through 
if you have your Bible, turn to Ezekiel 36, because it won't be there for a few minutes. Ezekiel 36. God is speaking to his people, and he says this. This is such a powerful, powerful passage in the Old Testament. He says, I will take you, this is speaking to the Israelites, God says this, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Now guys, the same things we talked about, this being morally evil and, and blinded and, and sick and all those things that we talked about, this was true of the Israelites. And God is saying, I will do all these things. I will cleanse you. I will sprinkle with the water on you. This is what Nicodemus would have been familiar with. And again, this is a picture of what God does. And born of the water and born of the Spirit means this. Number one, he cleanses us. So when Jesus is talking about being born of the water and the Spirit, there's two parts. first part is he cleanses us. Now this is important. Even of those of you who are saved, we begin to forget about the work of the gospel at this point. It's like we put the gospel, this being washed, it cleanses us, Period. And the fact is, is the period, there is no period there. There is a number two. The second thing is this, is that he indwells us. He indwells us. This is what happens in this being born again. We're given a new heart. He cleanses us. This spirit and water, he cleanses us. And then he indwells us. This is, guys, go back to that Ezekiel passage, verse 30, chapter 36, going on, verse 26 through 27. It says, and I, this is God, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I will put my spirit in you. You will no longer have this heart of stone. This is what happens when God gives us a new heart. I I love in that verse, it says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Is God saying, I will cause you to obey my rules, to live an obedient life through this heart that he's going to put in us. I think that kind of goes against our make ourselves better, we can do it ourselves, I earned and I'm holy before God because I didn't sin today. Like I think that kind of flies in the face of that because it is God who causes us to obey. It's only His grace, by His grace. So the thing, but again, we've conditioned ourselves to understand He cleanses us is kind of the stopping point. Because we understand salvation as a forgiveness of our sins, but then we put a period on it. And we disconnect the picture of water and spirit. We disconnect the picture of cleaning 
and indwelling. So this water is the, the purification part, and the Spirit is the indwelling part. But we disconnect these two pictures, which is interesting because then we can have our cleanliness and our ticket to heaven without our sanctification and living more like God. Make sense? Isn't that kind of convenient for us to forget the indwelling part? But guys, let me say this too, because I know there's those of you guys that are out there that, that like, man, are just with all that you have seeking God. The cool thing about this for you is that he's indwelling you, and you have the power to live the gospel-centered, righteous life that he has called you to live. Like, the period doesn't stop there for you either. It continues on. But again, separating, disconnecting these two, we miss the point of biblical salvation according to Scripture. And we focus first on the part we can focus just on the first part. We, well, when we focus just on the first part, we create this idea that once you pray this prayer, then you can live your life however you want to. And that's how we get a bunch of people who pray a prayer and then go on living morally evil and spiritually dead lives. And that's why the body of Christ gets very impure and becomes very ineffective. Um, yeah. Amen. I like that too. Um, you know, I just drive, I've heard Christians say this, you know, Christians aren't perfect, we're just forgiven. <laughs> um, do we need to make excuses to the world for why we are not letting the power of God radically transform our lives? Seriously? I mean, that, oh, that's just an excuse. Well, we're not perfect. We're just forgiven. So, I mean, do we need to make... Why don't we just say, well, Christians aren't moral. We're just forgiven. Or Christians aren't nice. We're just forgiven. Instead, we create this idea that salvation is about making this deal, and then after that we can live and be a Christian just like the rest of the world. The difference is that you live like them, that when you live like them, we have a get-out-of-jail-free card. Because this is not the gospel. What happens in the new birth is he cleanses us, but he gives us a new heart. He changes our heart. He changes our lives. Those of us that are born again, he's given you a new heart. He has indwelled your life. And guys, for those of you who are born again and you think, oh, I'm doing pretty good, be very, very, very careful. Uh, you know, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. We are going to look different. That's why in Jesus three or John 3, Jesus starts comparing the spirit and the wind. And so let's go back to verse 8. He says this, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Guys, you see the effects of the Spirit. Guys, that's, we don't see God. Like the world, what happens is, we don't see necessarily see God changing our lives, but that's what's going on is the Spirit is indwelling us. And we don't necessarily see the Spirit doing that, but we see the effects of the Spirit. So you want to see someone who's not following Christ and someone who's maybe probably lost, then there is no effects of the Spirit in their life. Does that make sense? There's no effects. There's nothing. The, the, we can't see the Spirit doing these things, but we see the effects of what the Spirit is doing in their lives. And so what happens is we have robbed the power of the Spirit of God. And 
Because he opens our eyes. He sets us on an entirely new course. Guys, I'm not saying that praying a prayer that, guys, if you prayed a prayer that you're lost. That's not what I'm saying. But it's more than praying a prayer. But the idea that you need a prayer and, and that is, it's, that's not the gospel and your faith and everything is not wrapped up in just you saying a few magical words. Um, Ezekiel, go back to chapter, Ezekiel, chapter 36 and we're almost done. Verse 24 through 27, it says this. It says, I, listen to the first person pronoun in this passage. I will take from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And the result is this. And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The question is this. And I'm going to end right here. The question is this. I know there's a whole lot more on your notes there. And uh, we're going to have to be continued to next week. Um, The question is this. Has God changed your heart? Like in your life, in your life, can you see the effects of the Spirit? Has God revealed your need? So when you look at your salvation and what you claim and hold so tightly to, did God reveal your need? Has God changed your heart? There's, four, there's two more aspects of that that we're going to get to. But it's a good place to start. You don't have to wait till next week to figure out whether you're saved or not, all right? Uh, like, you can work on that this week. We can have a conversation. But, guys, you don't need me to accept Christ, okay? You don't need to pray some fancy prayer to accept Christ, and to, for, for the Holy Spirit to do this work inside of you. But the question, believer, if you're a believer, if you think you're a believer, do you see the effects of the Spirit in your life? And you know what those look like. We don't have to talk about it. So what I want to do is I want to pray. We're going to sing one song and, and, uh, and we'll be dismissed. And what I want you guys to do is this. Listen, as we're singing this song, man, if you're a believer and you know it, like I'll tell you what, man. I, honestly, I went into this gospel series and I'm like going into it. And like by the time like week one, week two, I'm like questioning my salvation. Like seriously. I'm, I'm like going, am I really saved? Holy crap. You know, like seriously. And it was good. But guy, you know what, as the past two weeks, really two weeks have gone on, like I have never been more assured of my salvation in my entire life. And so this is going to cause one of two things to happen for you guys. You're, either going to, you're, you're either going to question and come out more strong, or you're going to question and get saved. And that's okay. <laughs> that's very much okay. So as we sing this song, I just, man, just... Have, have you seen the effects of the Spirit in your life? Have you been born again? Just reflect on that. And believer, if you know that for sure, like for sure, not like I, I'm for sure, but, I, but I, I kind of think so. Like if you know that for sure, man, as we sing this, oh, man, sing these praises because the, what, the, how marvelous, how wonderful what we're getting ready to sing like should mean something. 
not just words that fall from our lips with empty hearts. So let's, uh, let's pray. Uh, the band will come forward and, and let's pray. I want to pray specifically for us in this issue. Father, um, it's, uh, it's easy for us to just live life found in our Christianity and the, uh, the, the way that we've seen it model or the way that we've seen it taught or the way that, that other people uh, have told us that Christianity is supposed to be and how our walk with Christ is supposed to look. And, but Father, I pray that just as we look at this passage and as we finish it up next week, that we would not lean to our understanding or what we've been taught by other people, but that we would look intently at your word, that we would focus on what your word would have to say to us, not what Matt McBee has to say, not, not what Renovation Church has to say, but, Father, what your word has to say and what you told Nicodemus and that, that we cannot see the kingdom of God unless we are born again. And, Father, for those of us who have been wrestling with our salvation, we've been, for, for me, I've been wrestling with this. And, and God, um, let me sing a song to you like I've never sung before. Father, I love you so much. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.